And I want to take the time this morning, just for the sake of repetition, to read really the first eight verses of, um, of Colossians chapter 1. And I want to invite those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us of your love in the Spirit. You may be seated. We live in a world of absurdity. The same group who exclaims, be different, be you, is the same group who demands conformity to the world ideology. Those that say truth is what you want it to be are the same individuals who renounce anyone who claims to know truth. Rationalism is rejected in favor of extremism. Reasonableness is repudiated for ignorance. And soundness of argument is replaced with self-interest of attention. All to the point that the society we currently live in is now content to permit disorder while demanding order. It is unable to connect the consequences of worldview with the lawlessness that follows. They have no need to acknowledge the contradiction when they proclaim follow the science when it comes to a worldwide illness, but ignore the same maxim when it comes to pregnancy and abortion. Abandoning sense and sanity, we also lose security and stability because it asks people of society then to live in the chaos of society. We constantly need to adapt to the next trend, accommodate the next crusade, and adopt the next belief. We live in a world of absurdity, a world that lacks sense, sanity, and security. Each time that the behavior becomes more ridiculous, Christians become more dismayed and more appalled. But truly, we should never be surprised by the attitudes, activities, and actions of those who've rejected God, because revealed in his sacred word is the eventual outcome for those who've chosen to ignore him. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 through 32 are shown, or we are shown through those verses, that God has delivered some over to their corruption. And those people not only practice unrighteousness and evil and greed and deceit and are arrogant, unloving, and unmerciful, but the text goes on to say that those same people applaud the same behavior in others. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that people confuse wisdom and foolishness, calling what is wise foolish and vice versa. They have become like Judah in Isaiah 5.20, calling what is good evil and what is evil good. 
A rejection of God is a rejection of sanity. Because when society rejects God, what it does is it removes any, any restraints of evil, any guides of goodness, and any boundaries of morality, giving itself the liberty to act in any way that society wants to at any time that it wants to, regardless of the harmful outcomes that may follow. My goal, though, is not to complain against the world. We could spend sermon after sermon after sermon complaining against the world and preaching against the world, but never draw nearer to God ourselves. At the same time, we could admonish the world again and again and again, but we never accomplish anything if we don't announce the gospel to the world. And we certainly never provide a solution. And we stray from God's will if we never acknowledge God. So instead, this morning, I place our attention not on the world, but only on the world so long as we can firmly place our attention on God so that we may see him, that as we look at the atrocities that are filling this world, we may experience the awe of God. We indeed live in a world of wickedness, a world that plums the very depths of depravity to its most extreme measures. And yet while people abandon God, God never abandons them. While the world is working to turn its attention to anything but God, God is working to turn their attention to nothing but God. For the unbeliever, he works continuously, laboring so that none should perish apart from him. For the believer, he repeatedly orchestrates life circumstances to draw each and every single one of us ever closer to him. What a stunning display of God's character this is. The contrast between the unfaithfulness of the world and the faithfulness of God is incredible. To see how undeserving humanity is, how undeserving we are of the gospel, and yet at the same time we see this incredible and impeccable God. At the slightest discourtesy, most people are willing to withdraw from any relationship with other people. At the slightest inclination of suffering, a lot of people are willing to withdraw themselves from God and abandon their relationship with him. Yet God remains faithful. He remains faithful to his character, to his word, and to himself by continuing to be faithful to people. For three weeks now, we've examined the introduction of Colossians. And what we've seen in doing so is we've seen three aspects of faithfulness in the Christian life. And we began with individual faithfulness, what we saw in verse 1, exploring the lives of Paul and Timothy and looking at who they were. And through them, we have this extraordinary picture of what it means to faithfully pursue God and his calling. And then we have the second degree or the second level. And we saw that in the first part of verse 2, this level in which looking specifically at the faithfulness of the church, noting how our individual faithfulness impacts the ability of the church to be faithful to the entire body. And so now this morning we come to that final aspect, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of people is a direct result of the faithfulness of God. Born out of humility that causes us to recognize both our need for God's faithfulness and our undeserving nature of it, our faithfulness to God and to others is a response to ingratitude, to the great and glorious God. Therefore, this morning, we look at the expression of God's faithfulness from the second part of Colossians 1-2. 
and it reads just simply this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. First, we see that God's faithfulness is expressed by God's grace. Speaking of the magnificence of God's grace, Martin Lloyd-Jones remarks, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Are we overcome sufficiently enough that we are also sufficiently overcome by the grace of God? We are so astonished by the gruesomeness of the world that we cannot help but be astonished that God would even continue to extend grace to the world. But we should never be so proud that we forget we were once part of the world. We too were undeserving of God's grace, and yet it was offered just as freely to us. So incredible is this grace of God. It's no wonder that Paul begins and chooses it as a greeting for his letter, as the opening. Rather than saying what was typical of the the day, greetings to you, Paul opens this letter with the phrase grace to you. In fact, it's probably no accident that Paul bookends the letter with the terms grace, beginning here in verse 2, saying grace to you from God our Father. But then he ends the letter in 4.18 by saying grace be with you, calling attention to the importance of grace in the Christian life. By his grace, God is revealed. By his grace, we are saved. By his grace, we are loved. By his grace, we are sanctified. By his grace, we are sustained. By his grace, we are gifted. By his grace, we are preserved. By his grace, we are upheld. By his grace, we are protected. And by his grace, we are secured. The list goes on and on and on. By God's grace, grace contrasts immensely with the laws of the day. Because the laws judge a person based on his or, abili- his or her ability to keep the law. But grace removed those chains. And it judged a person based on his or her willingness to trust Christ. It was also a direct confrontation to the false teaching that was infiltrating the church at Colossae. The church at Colossae in Christ, as we talked about last week. While some were seeking to add to the gospel by including their own rules, by including regulations, they added to it. It was the grace of God that is revealed. The grace of God restricts the possibility to even add anything to it. It's not permitting anyone to affix anything to the gospel, to affix anything to God's grace. Grace makes Christianity distinctive from any other religion in the world because it calls upon followers to trust in the sufficient work of someone else rather than the insufficient work of ourselves. Never is the gospel grace and. The gospel is always grace alone. To append anything to grace, then, is to say that God, what God offers is insufficient. We're saying that God needs to give us more or that God's grace needs more. Most often what we're saying is what the gospel needs is more of me, that I need to be involved in this process, that the grace that I receive from God is dependent upon my ability to please God. But in Exodus 3.14, God tells us, or tells Moses, I am, tell them I am sent you. That title I am speaks to God's self-existence, his self-sufficiency, He needs nothing apart from himself. 
he sustains himself. If God needs nothing outside of himself to exist for all of eternity, long before we ever were and long after we will be, then certainly he has all that is necessary. And why would any of us ever think that we could add anything to God's grace? If he is all-sufficient, he certainly doesn't need anything else from us. In fact, we need him. If God lacks nothing, certainly his grace lacks nothing as well. Responding to Paul's thorn in the flesh, the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you. That is, God's grace is enough. It is plentiful. It is bountiful. And therefore, is all that is necessary for a believer to endure life and experience eternal life. Stephen Sharnock writes, Grace is as long in renewing us as sin was in defacing us. God's grace overcomes man's disgrace. This grace of God, his unmerited favor, his divine blessing, it's not necessarily given to those who deserve it, but to those who need it. If it could be earned, if it could be purchased, then it wouldn't be grace. It is the clearest expression of, if the clearest expression of God's faithfulness is the gospel, then I would say his grace is most evident in the gospel. And we only need then to look at salvation to know of God's faithfulness. After the well-recited verses of Romans 3.23, when Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. After we read those words, we come to verse 24. And it says, They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The fullest expression of God's grace is in the fullest acceptance of God's gospel. Just a few verses later in our text, going from verse 1-2 down to 1-6, you'll see that Paul equates acceptance of the gospel with an appreciation for God's grace. An appreciation of God's grace only materializes, only occurs when we have an appreciation of our need for God's grace. If we examine ourselves in the mirror of God's word, as James urges us to do, we see that people are described as slaves of sin, disobedient children who are idolaters, gossips, slanderers, living in the passion of the flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind. This morning in Sunday school, we continued the study in Ezra. And if you go to Ezra 9, you don't have to go there. I'm going to read to you, though. You see this picture of Ezra who's overcome by the sin of himself and the sin of his people. Ezra 9, verse 6, Ezra says, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you. My God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been a terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Ezra pictures brokenness over sin and a need for God. That brokenness and that sinfulness, though, is contrasted. Because if you jump down to verse 8 and verse 9, you, say, you see it says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and to give us a stake in his holy place. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us, in our slavery. 
There's a picture of man's sinfulness and man's brokenness. And at the same time, a picture of God's willingness to extend grace. There are descriptive words employed throughout scripture to examine the state of the human heart. And they paint a horrendous picture of who people are. A picture that I'm sure most of us would love to deny, but I can tell you that I know when I look at the Bible, when I look at the word and what it says, I can't deny that what it says is truth about who I am. But that's the part of the wonder, the gospel. It's not merely that we are saved. It's that we're saved in spite of who we are. If we want to stand in awe of something, then we only need to be reminded of the fact that God has not abandoned us, but that he chooses us even still. Regardless of the depths of sin in our life, he maintains his offer of forgiveness and redemption. John MacArthur puts it this way. We cannot sin beyond God's grace because as wicked and extensive as our sins might be or become, they will never approach the greatness of his grace. The entirety of the gospel is determined by the grace of God. By his unwillingness, or by his willingness, sorry, by his willingness to extend favor to even the most undeserving person. Thankfully, it is never bestowed upon us based on our goodness, but on God's goodness. If it were ever extended to us solely based on our, our goodness, on that premise, none of us would experience the grace of God. But his grace reaches us. It reaches us both whenever we need it and everywhere and wherever we need it because it's dependent upon his goodness. At our lowest points, God extends grace to meet us there, to reach us when we're most overcome by the severity of sin, like we just read in Ezra. Even at our highest moments, when we may be most near to God and our relationship with him may be thriving, we still need grace. And still, God's grace reaches us. Additionally, because God is the never-changing God, never does his grace change as well. For Paul to point to the grace at the point to grace at the opening of this letter is to express confidence in God's character and God's work. Because we have seen that God has been consistently faithful. When he says, My grace is sufficient for you, we've seen his grace has been sufficient for everyone throughout history. From the outset of the letter, Paul is calling attention to the work of God, which is a marvelous thing. While God never removes his grace from us, neither does that give us an excuse to treat it casually. We must be cautious that we do not distort God's grace. That by simply looking at it, we don't end up saying, because it will always be available to me, I can live apart from God's grace and just call upon it when I need it when I want to return. Or never should we be able to just choose to reject it in this moment so that we may indulge in the pleasures of the flesh because we know that when we return, God's grace will be there for us. To do this transforms God's grace into nothing more than a cheap gift. Grace is never cheap. It is an extravagance that costs the life of Jesus Christ. Instead, Humility causes us to respond to God's grace in thankfulness. As Paul writes in Corinthians, he declares, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Corinthians 15, 57. I can't speak for you guys, but I know who I am. I know the realities of my heart are far more than, far more than I know the realities of any of your hearts. I know the pride and arrogance that make up every day of my life. I know the anger that often boils out into, from my heart and into my attitude in dealings with others. Frequently, I know the moments of my life that indicate an instability of faith and a lack of trust in God that I often have. And yet, despite all of that, I know that God calls me to him, that God's grace allows me to come to him. And so how can an attitude be anything but one of complete thankfulness when I experience God's comprehensive, sufficient grace? Humility also causes us to respond to God's grace by extending grace. I'm always amazed at how quick we are to demand grace from others and how slow or unwilling we are to give it to others. But what would happen if God adopted that same attitude towards us? How frequently would we be on the receiving end of God's divine gifts and blessings if he acted towards us the same way we often act towards others? We cannot even use the excuse of others don't deserve our grace because we certainly didn't deserve it either. To quote Randy Alcorn, the hardest part about grace, swallowing our pride and saying, I don't deserve this any more than the criminal does. God's grace is an expression of his faithfulness. But if we move on in our text, we also see that God's peace is an expression of his faithfulness. The text says grace and peace to you from God the Father. God is a God of peace. Each person of the Trinity is referenced throughout the scriptures and is referenced as one of peace. God the Father is called the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20. God the Son is called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9.6. And God the Spirit is called the Spirit of Peace in Ephesians 4.3. Peace is the defining characteristic of the Christian faith, becoming the evidence that we indeed follow Christ because we live what we believe. Despite what most of us believe or think, peace is not merely the opposite of conflict, nor is it the absence of conflict. Peace is a sense of well-being for a person. It is contentment. If you visit Israel, even today, you will find that many will greet one another with the saying, Shalom, something most of us have probably heard, and it simply translates peace. More specifically, it translates God's peace, as in God's peace to you. Even though many in Israel have no belief in God, this is how they greet one another. But I would tell you, they probably don't believe it has the same meaning that it once did. In early Israel, peace was defined by good relationships with others, by prosperity, and most importantly, most notably, by contentedness. For them, peace was the absence of inner turmoil, not necessarily external. It was freedom from anxiety. God's peace is a condition of being satisfied and content regardless of the circumstances. The concept is captured well by the psalmist in Psalm 72 in the first seven verses when he writes, God, give us your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring well-being to the people and the hills 
righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May the king be like rain that falls on the cut grass, like spring's showers that water the earth. May the righteous flourish in his days and well-being, peace, abound until the moon is no more. This is peace. Paul's use of the term peace is much more precise. Of the 91 times it's used in the New Testament, Paul uses it 54 times. And he uses it to refer to a harmonious relationship, but not just a general relationship, specifically a reconciled relationship with God. His words in Colossians 1.20 flow directly from that concept. When he writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Christ, and through him reconcile everything to himself. It is not until that one has peace with God that one can have true, genuine peace. By God's grace, then, peace, God's peace, is only realized at the acceptance of the gospel. It says, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses later from what I just read in Romans 5.1, verse 17, we see that peace is expressed through salvation. Because at one time we were hostile with God. We were enemies of God, offending him with our sinfulness. We were slaves to evil, evil rather than slaves to righteousness. And yet as a direct result of God's grace that we just talked about, the gospel has been proclaimed and offered to us. And he has allowed us to respond to that offer. At that acceptance, the relationship that was broken has now become repaired. It has become fixed. And we are now reconciled to him. We now have peace with God. And only then, when we accept Christ, can we know what true peace is, both with God and through God. Ultimately then, God's peace is fully consummated at the death of Satan, or defeat of Satan. This morning we read the concluding verses from Romans chapter 16, noting the grand triumph of the gospel. But in verse 20, we see the permanence of peace when we read this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God's defeat of Satan ushers in a kingdom of complete peace, a time when the well-being of people will be fulfilled for all of eternity. To have God's peace, then, is to be reassured of this very reality, of that end and of that outcome. It is an expression of the confidence to the point that regardless of whether or not we experience physical peace here, in this moment, we can be at peace because we are confident that God's plan will be accomplished and we will be at peace with him. Such peace has a bearing on our, on our relationships with one another, also with God. In fact, the relationships we have with another flow from our relationship with God. We've already noted that the ultimate expression of peace is reconciliation with God by the work of Christ, noted in Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Peace causes us to live in harmony with God because our well-being is taken care of, our future is secure. 
But God's peace also causes us to pursue a lifestyle of peace. And I use that word intentionally because peace should be the very character of our lives, the very character of our relationships. God's peace replaces man's dissension. God's peace replaces man's resentment. And God's peace replaces man's grudges. We could even make that list go on and on, I'm sure. We live a lifestyle of peace because we have peace with God. As Jerry Bridges has said, that's a longer quote, peace should be a hallmark of the godly person. First, because it is a godlike trait. God is called the God of peace several times in the New Testament. He took the initiative to establish peace with rebellious men, and he is the author of both personal peace as well as peace among men. Peace should be part of our character also because God has promised us his peace, because he has commanded us to let peace rule in our lives and relationships, and because peace is a fruit of the Spirit and therefore an evidence of his working in our lives. Together, the grace and peace we receive from our God throughout the gospel or through the gospel compel faithfulness, not out of obligation, but out of appreciation. We spent the last three weeks looking at three degrees of faithfulness in the Christian life. The first degree is that of individual faithfulness. In verse 1, once again, Paul and Timothy, who have labored together for the cause of Christ, they serve as great examples. Their faithfulness encourages our faithfulness as we see how they gave so much of themselves. This is met with the second degree of faithfulness in verse 2. Found within the function of the church. Our individual faithfulness is used corporately as we discussed last week so that the church as a body of Christ may fulfill its call to faithfulness. We saw that with Epaphras and Tychicus and Onesimus. Each who use their individual gifts, their individual callings, for the sake of the body, functioning with the gifts of others. And now we see God's faithfulness, expressed throughout through his grace and peace. Psalm 103 exclaimed this morning that God abounds in faithful love. We only need to look at the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, to see that God's love is always there, and to see that he is always faithful with it. It is his love that is evidence of God's grace and peace. Faithfulness is simply a response to God's grace and peace. That is to say, we're faithful only because God was faithful. I'll close with the words from Sinclair Ferguson. Those to whom God is faithful become faithful. Let's pray. Father God, indeed you are a great and glorious God. Father, you are you're gracious and loving and faithful. Father, I pray we would not take that for granted. Father, may we recognize your grace and peace May we recognize your faithfulness in every aspect of our lives, Lord. Father, you are the God that has reconciled us to you, that you call us to yourself, that you've graciously given us access to the gospel, that you've had it proclaimed to us that we may respond and come to you, Lord. Thank you for calling us to yourself. 
Father, may we exalt you and glorify you in all that we do as a result. May we then turn to you. As you've been faithful to us, may we be faithful to you. May we be found faithful in your sight, in your eyes. As you give us grace and peace, may we extend grace and peace to others. May we act upon the belief that we have in you. And so, Father, we just pray that your spirit convicts us this morning and convinces us and inclines us to you, that every step we take would be one that walks more intimately with you, according to your will and according to your way. We commit this time to you, giving you praise and honor. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.